0: He's saying if we were to to claim this longing for God, the longing that we have for God, as the deepest treasure of our hearts, we would be able, by God's grace, to live the commandments because we would be clinging to God and trusting in God and wanting to do what God says every step of the way because we would see him. That is, again, loving relationship with him and being transformed into the loving people that we are called to be, I always think of that passage in Romans, the love of God shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That's the happiness of heaven, is to have love shed abroad, filling us and overflowing from us in all directions. That's happiness.
1: Hello and welcome to another clarifying episode of On the Journey with Matt and Ken and Kenny. I'm Matt Swaim, Director of Outreach for the Coming Home Network, along with my colleagues Ken Hensley, who was a Baptist pastor, Kenny Burchard, who was a Foursquare pastor, somehow or other. We all ended up in the Catholic Church, and we've been spending, you know, hundreds of episodes trying to explain how that came to be. So, uh, hope that you are enjoying this series. If you want to go back and watch previous episodes, you can go to CH Network. Dot .org to find some of those. Um, If you're someone who is currently on the journey, as our title indicates, then please come visit us in our online community. That's community.chnetwork.org. Uh, you can also support our work and make it to where uh, we can continue to put these episodes out. And by the way, if you go to our website, chnetwork.org slash donate, and you enter the code, uh what is it? OTJ 3141. Kenny, is that the right code? OTJ 3141. You can get a signed copy of "What Must I Do to Be Saved" by Marcus Grody, which ties directly into this whole topic that we're in right now about sanctification, justification, <laughs> holiness, how to be a good person by <laughs> doing more than just not doing bad things. So, gentlemen, you ready to dig back into it?
0: Yes, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. All right. Sh- shall I begin?
1: Hensley, you're the one who was the Calvinist, so I feel like you should lead the uh, you should lead the conversation on sanctification.
2: It's your destiny. Well,
0: all right. And I do want to say, though, I must say, Matt is right that most of the episodes we've done, over one hundred and twenty episodes now on on the journey, are describing how we came from a Protestant point of view to a Catholic point of view on various issues. This is the first series that I have led in where the material here, there's a great deal of overlap. A, a bit later in this series, we will bring in some points that that would not apply to my previous life um, as a Baptist, but most of what we're saying applies across the board. Um, and so I just want to throw that out there. You know, this is something we can all benefit from. This is something that applies to, to all of us. This is not something that is, uh, that is um, Catholic um, as opposed to, at least not yet, at least not yet, okay? Yeah. And having said that, I begin by reading the Catholic Catechism, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which says, we read this last week, the desire for God is written in the human heart because man is created by God and for God, and God never ceases to draw man to himself, Only in God will he find the truth and happiness he never stops searching for. This is uh, paragraph 27 of the Catechism. Now, so far in our series on the doctrine of sanctification, we've learned that the desire for God is written in the human heart. We've learned why the desire for God is written in the human heart. And we've learned that only in God will any one of us ever find the truth and happiness that we never, ever stop searching for. As Pascal said, all men seek happiness, even those who hang themselves are in the process of trying to find something better, hoping for something better. It's because God created us in his image and his likeness as his sons and daughters, specifically to share in the happiness of the eternal family, if you will, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is why we were made. And this is why the desire for God is written on our hearts. This is why only in God will we find this truth and happiness we never stop searching for, because this is what we are created for. And in Christ, this is why we are being remolded as well into the same image and likeness, as Paul said in Ephesians 1, to the praise of his glorious grace. Okay, this is where we've come so far. Any introductory thoughts, gentlemen, before we move forward?
1: I mean, it's pretty basic stuff in terms of, you know, I mean, even even a Catholic who's watching this, who knows about the uh, the old school Baltimore catechism would know. I mean, why did God make us right to um, to know, love and serve him to be happy in this life and the next. Right. I mean, these are these are basic things of Christianity. I mean, it's all about we broke the world uh, by our sin. We're trying to get back, you know, to this Edenic vision of relationship with god i mean it's all basic pretty much straightforward christianity that i think everybody can get along with
0: yep and i like being basic this is basic okay yeah this is the rudiments this is (laughs) this is these are bottom lines okay now starting next week gentlemen and in the weeks following we're going to attack the very practical question okay what do we do that is how do we cooperate with god's plan for our sanctification for our eternal happiness, for our growth and holiness. But this week, I want to deal with one last preliminary question before we move into that. And here here is how it goes. Here's the question. Knowing what you and I know then, these very, as you say, Matt, and true, these basic things, knowing why we were created to be God's image and likeness, to enjoy Him forever, as the Catechism says, Knowing, as the Catechism says, that only in God, therefore, will you or I or anybody on this planet find the truth and happiness we never stop searching for. Knowing that, as Pascal taught us a couple of weeks ago, the infinite abyss inside of us can only be filled by an infinite object that is by God himself. Why is it? Here's the question. Why is it that you and I don't get out of bed every single morning wanting to run, sprint, full tilt in the direction of God? and of holiness, and of, being, and of having the love of God shed abroad in our hearts to love God with all our heart, to love our neighbors? Why aren't we just running toward this every single day? As C.S. Lewis described, and we read this last week, or we read it whenever, a couple of weeks ago. Here we are, C.S. Lewis from his sermon, The Weight of Glory. Here we are fooling about, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea how gentlemen is this to be explained this is the question that we're going to be looking at today
2: it's a really great question to start with because you're living you're living in this um world between two points of tension you know here we have this um, statement of God's created intentions for humanity that that uh, that Matt shared, you know, from the Baltimore Catechism, or that you that you've shared, mm-hmm. you know, from the current Catechism. That here is this beautiful creation, and God made it all good, and we're part of it, and we bear His image, and so forth and so on. And you know, we close the book, put down the page, and look around, <laughs> and we find something very different in our. Uh, Personal experience and in our view of of the world. And all of this cries out for an answer. Why in the world is the world the way it is? And everybody has an answer to this question, Uh, not just Catholics, not just Christians. Everybody, in a sense, is um, vying for (laughs) their answer to be the right one. And this is, but this is the great question if anything's wrong with the world, what in the world is it? And I'm really glad that we're going to be tackling this really from a Christian and very Catholic perspective. It's so important.
1: Yeah. So every time I hear that uh, quotation from C.S. Lewis, I always think back to this band that we used to play with all the time called Anathalo. They were from uh, Michigan and uh, they had an album called A Holiday at the Sea. And the title track was like based off of this very quote, right? It's, it's such a relatable quote. Like we are messing around with stuff that's garbage, uh, you know, rather than seeking the happiness we were made for. Uh, but it, it also kind of reminds me of this, um this quote from, I believe it's Reinhold Niebuhr, who says that original sin is the one empirically verifiable Christian doctrine. <laughs> it's like the one thing that you don't really have to do a lot of work to prove. I feel like, in the words of Aerosmith, "There's something wrong with the world today." I don't know what it is.
0: So it's Reinhold Niebuhr. Last week yeah. you, you quoted that, and I suggested it might be Chesterton. So you looked it up. Uh,
1: no, it's Niebuhr. I looked it up. Okay, Reinhold I looked it up. Neighbor. I think it's Niebuhr. It might have okay. been. It might have been somebody else, but
0: okay. Well, that's the question we're going to be asking in this episode: is why don't we get up each day just running toward where where true happiness is to be found? Okay, now. Beginning at this point in our series, Matt and Ken, um, we're going to be using the Old Testament story of the Exodus as our pattern, as a type, if you will, for the teaching on sanctification. Now, everyone knows the Exodus is the primary Old Testament image of salvation. This is when God led his children, the children of Israel, out of Egypt, and I think that some listening and watching may be surprised, but I think that all of us can be inspired When we see, and this is something we're going to see over the course of this series, how the story of the Exodus really does serve as a perfect type, as a perfect um, um, concrete uh, image, picture of the entire process by which we make our way from uh, um, where we are to our eternal inheritance in the land that flows with milk and honey, heaven style, okay? So where does the story of the Exodus begin? When we flip open the book of Exodus, we find the children of Israel living in Egypt and actually doing quite well. Uh, Joseph has risen to a position of prominence and power in Pharaoh's court. Uh, uh, Joseph has brought his family up to live in the land of Goshen, where they have multiplied greatly. And I'm reading now from Exodus chapter 1. All the offspring of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the descendants of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now, this is interesting right away, because you may recall from our reading of Genesis chapter 1, that God created man in his image and likeness, male and female, he created us, and he commanded them to be fruitful and multiply as the Israelites have been doing here, and fill the earth. You may also recall from your reading of Genesis chapter 12, um, and also following when God comes to speak to Isaac, to Jacob, and the others, that God promised that he would make Abraham the father of a great multitude, a vast multitude. In fact, in Genesis 15, verse 5, we read God saying to Abraham, look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, so shall your descendants be. So as the book of Exodus begins, it looks like God's promise has been and is being fulfilled in the lives of Abraham's descendants and fulfilled quite nicely. They are multiplying and they're filling the land. But then we come to verse eight of chapter one in Exodus and we read this. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war befall us, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. So they made the people of Israel serve with rigor and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work they made them serve With rigor. And what I want to suggest right here at the beginning is that, in an image, in a type, in a concrete illustration, if you will, what we have here is the story of creation and the fall. God creates the human race to live in happiness with Him, with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He sends male and female forth to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, and as mirrors of God's glory, Then God's glory is going to fill the earth as the waters cover the seas. And then suddenly we find ourselves in bondage to sin and death, the hardest taskmasters of all, working, if you will, with hard service and mortar and brick. Suddenly here we are sitting on the ground trying to make brick without straw. And it reminds me of what Jesus said in John 8, 34. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. So this is where we are, and I know that Kenny had something he wanted to say here, right, Kenny?
2: Yeah, I mean, what, what, and I, lo- I love it that you bring this out, Ken. That this is this text is really a picture of the fall, and in fact, um, what we see in so many of these Old Testament narratives as they unfold is uh, what some biblical theologians call the Bible matrix, if you will. This is a recurrent, cyclical. A group of things that follow each other that always begin with God doing something good. Uh, so, for instance, creating a good world uh, where everything is working the way it's supposed to, identifying within that good world an imager who represents Him, who is to, uh, th- you know, through the multiplication of His family, a- a spread out and bless the whole world. And then something happens. Two things kind of happen in these narratives. one is that a subversive power will come in and interject something that's contrary to the will of God, so you see that even going back in Genesis where the serpent comes in here now you have this uh this pharaoh who doesn't know the the people of God and he's sort of asserts himself and and tries to es- essentially change the story and then things fall off the rails, and they also the other element that you have is that the imager, the people of God or the person of God, participates in big and small ways with these subversive powers and, in a sense, creates a a rebellious, contrary um, uh, way of being in the world. And what that does is brings about fallenness. It brings about curse. It brings about problems and trouble. And so, you know, if we can pull back from all of these biblical stories, just like what you've done here in Exodus, we'll see the same recipe. It's it's kind of like going to Taco Bell almost. Well, I have a burrito supreme, a taco supreme, an enchilada. I've got I've got all these dishes, but you know, they all have the same seven ingredients in them. And they're just called different things. And this is what we're seeing in the story, especially this meta story that you've just read in Exodus, this is the biblical story and it happens over and over and over again. So that what we have now is a meta narrative that finds itself not only in the ancient stories of the Bible, but now uh, I have something I can relate to because my life, Ken and Matt kind of looks like this meta narrative that I see in the Bible.
1: Yeah. So, if you read the book of Judges, um, the book of Judges is basically just this thing happening. What is it like 12 times? Uh, right. you know, the people of you know forget mm-hmm. God. They follow after idols. An oppressor yes. rises up. You know, beats the right, snot right. out of the Israelites. It's- and next thing you know, they turn back to God and say, "Hey, we're sorry, we forgot you." God raises up a deliverer, mm-hmm. and everything is hunky dory. And then they're like, ah, everything's fine. Right. We don't need God anymore, right?" And then it, and the cycle repeats. Like this is kind of how it how it goes. Um, throughout it, salvation
2: history. It's the DNA, if you will, of the biblical story, the the double helix. You know, you see it everywhere. If you're looking and you're paying attention, uh, just like if you were looking at DNA in a laboratory of one person and multiple different samples, you would say, there it is again. There it is again. There it is again. And here we are. You know, Ken, you've, you've sort of found the tip of the spear.
0: Okay. So what we're, we're kind of talking about here is, it is the pattern we see it in the fall we see it in the garden with adam and eve and we see it here in the exodus we see them growing and multiplying and then we see this alien evil influence coming the pharaoh saying hold on they may grow and they'll outnumber us so we've got to we've got to put them into bondage okay but now what i want to do you guys moving forward here is i want to ask the question how are we to best understand what we refer to as sin because the, the question i asked a few moments ago was knowing what we know about god's intention for us in creation, knowing what we know about our pursuit of happiness and how we will never find what we're looking for except in loving relationship with God and being made that person that is filled with the love of God. In other words, love from God. Why aren't we running toward it? Well, how are we to best understand sin? Because sin is described in scripture in a number of ways. Let me walk through a few quickly. For instance, St. John describes sin for us as transgression of God's law. It's breaking God's law. And in the same way, St. Augustine spoke of sin as, quote, I'm quoting now St. Augustine, any thought, word, or deed against the law of God. Okay, this is simple, this is basic, and this is true. When we sin, we are violating the law of God. We're violating the moral law, which is a transcription of God's own moral character. But there are other images. In Romans 3.23, St. Paul speaks of sin as a missing of the mark. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the image, as many have noted, the image that we have here is of an archer with his bow. Takes his bow, he picks up an arrow, he sets it on the string, he pulls it back and he fires, but the arrow falls short of what he's aiming at. It falls short of the target It misses the mark. And I think that thinking of sin in this way reminds us, again, of our creation in the image and likeness of God. We are made to be finite mirrors of God's very being, God's nature, and that includes God's moral character. When we sin, then, we fall short of what God created us to be and what God intends for us to be. Um, To use the words of St. Thomas Aquinas on this, every sin we commit is, quote, a deviation from our true end as human beings. So that's another way of thinking of sin. It's a deviation from our true end for God's purpose for us. Now, another way to think of sin is as a failure to love. Jesus said that all of the commandments of God, in fact, can be all of the moral commandments, can be summed up by this one commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and might, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So when we sin, we are failing to love God failing to love our neighbor sin is a failure to love and then there's another way that sin is described and mainly i'm looking at romans chapter 7 where saint paul describes sin as a kind of law or principle or force or power within us um, that seems to drive us in the direction of doing what we in our heart of hearts don't even want to do listen to what paul says i do not understand what i do For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. I delight in God's law, but I see another law or principle power at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner to the law of sin at work within my members. And this is something I think every one of us reading can say um, in in a, a a negative kind of way, amen we see this happening within us okay so here are some ways that sin is described it's a violation of god's law a violation of god's moral character it is missing the mark missing uh, that is falling short of our true end as created beings in the image and likeness of god created to be his sons and daughters it's a failure to love and it's a power within us driving us in that direction um do do you have anything you want to add there
1: yeah, I just wanted to add one quick thing um, from paragraph 387. And this is where it might be helpful to kind of explain where we all came from. You know, Kenny and I were in the Wesleyan-Arminian camp. And Ken, you were, uh, you know, in more of the Reformed Calvinist world. Um, in our world, we very much believed in this question of, of free will and, and how that all worked. Um, but in in paragraph 387 of the Catechism, it talks about how sin is... An abuse of the freedom that God gives to created persons, so that they are capable of loving Him and loving one another. Uh, in some sense, this is completely harmonious with a Wesleyan Armenian mm-hmm. worldview that says, you know, we were given this freedom so that we could love freely. Sin is basically taking that freedom and doing bad things with it. <laughs> right, <laughs> you know, right? Um, so, so that abuse of freedom is, is I think. You know for, for anybody who comes from that theological background yeah, that's I, mean, I think that's a great way to describe it.
0: Yeah, thanks for mm-hmm. adding that. yeah, yeah it's, it's an abuse of the freedom that God gave us again as made in His image and likeness. Mm-hmm. Um, God is free. God created us to be free. Okay, let me summarize then because I'm going to move into a new realm, but summarize what we've said here then sin is transgression of the moral standards of God, God's law. Sin is falling short of who we were created to be sin is a failure to love sin is a kind of power or a principle or a force operating within us as fallen human beings driving us in the direction of um doing what is wrong and doing what will not even make us happy or whole or or or, um holy at all and then uh, what i want to say i guess is that each of these ways of describing the situation is true didn't did you have something you want to add there though kenny before i move
2: Yeah, a couple, a couple of things, Ken. If you can give give me a second, guys, and I, these just I'm trying to scoop up from what I'm hearing and and how it's how it's hitting me. And one of my favorite ways that the Catechism discusses what it means to be in the image of God, because this is a phrase we're using many times in the series, is in in paragraph 518 and others. But uh, the image of God is described as a vocation, not just a set of attributes that human beings have, but an actual calling. It is our vocation to be in the image of God or to image God. That is why. Uh, that is how God made us. And so one of the things that happens now, because that's true, now you're talking about sin, one of the things that happens, I've said it and I've heard it, and it's in songs and it's in movies, is someone will make a mistake. They'll do something bad, something immoral, something evil. And when confronted about it, or even when looking in the mirror, they'll say, Well, I'm only human. I'm only human. As if to say um, that that what it means to be human is essentially to be broken and fractured and sinful and weak and um, and bad. <laughs> that, that, that in some way doing evil equals what it means to be human. And so we say, I'm only human. And what's so interesting is that that is not a very biblical way of thinking about what it means to be human. It is certainly a way of thinking about what it means to be fallen. But now, as 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 Christians and as Catholics, we use this phrase when we talk about Jesus and our Trinitarian Christology and the nature of Jesus. We say that Jesus is fully human. Uh, When we're bad, we say, I'm only human. But when we talk about Jesus, we say Jesus is fully human and fully God. And the mistake that we can make right there is to think that there's some idealized human um way, and that we're standing Jesus next to that and saying, oh, Jesus is a 100% like this ideal version of humanity. But our Christology wants us to say this. Jesus is the fully realized humanity, or what humanity is supposed to be, in himself. And so um, when we say, I'm only human— I'll say it this way, that's not a very Catholic way of talking about what it means to be human. What it means to be human is to be like Jesus. What it means to be fallen, and you're going back into you know in all these stories is to be like Adam is to be like Israel. It's to be like these biblical characters who fail to live up to and into their vocation, which the Catechism says right, is to right. be, in the image of God. So when you read, and this will be the last thing that I'll say, uh, Matt and Ken, when you read, read for instance, Romans chapter 7, where Paul is saying, O oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? One of the commentators that I really love on, on that chapter, who kind of captures this whole big idea, is... Um, the biblical scholar uh, ben witherington III in his socio rhetorical commentary in the book of romans he says this isn't just paul talking about paul this is if you can see it paul in this moment in the book of Revel- in, in the book of uh, romans stepping into the character of adam in the fall in his f- fallenness and 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 crying out from the depth of his soul what adam said, or would say, by virtue of his own fallenness. Adam, O oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? And really, the Old Testament is, is a story that repeats itself over and over, crying out for an answer. Who will deliver us from this body of death that we, by virtue of being fallen humans, not fully human, have slipped into? And that's as much as I'll say, right?
0: Yeah. There. Yes. Well, let me kind of pile this all together then, including what you've just said. Then we're looking at sin. We're asking, what is sin all about? And we're looking at it from various angles. And each of these angles is true. that That's the point I want to make. Each of these angles that we've mentioned sheds light on the nature of this warfare this within us. Each of them explains something of what we are doing, I think, when we choose to do wrong. We are choosing to transgress God's law. We are choosing to miss the mark. We are choosing to fail um, in our love of God and love of of neighbor. We are choosing to give ourselves over to this power of sin. We are wearing our Adam suit, if you will, you know, (laughs) with, you know, we are failing to be fully human, which is what we were as we were created to be sons and daughters of God in the image and likeness of God mirroring forth God's nature God's being in the way that we are we're falling short of all this okay but here's what i want to suggest and this may just be me but i think i'm making a point a little bit beyond just personal taste in this okay none of these ways of describing sin gets for me at the question of motivation and this is where i want to go in other words I wanna know more. Um, I want to know what motivates me to transgress God's law, to fail in love, to fire my arrow and miss the mark, You know, to follow this force, this power within me that is driving me to do what I, in my heart of hearts I don't even wanna do. I wanna know what motivates me. And this is where I wanna bring in another image then of sin that we find in the Bible In fact, we find this throughout Scripture. It's the image that we've already mentioned and referred to many times in the the first two episodes of this series. And it's the image that I think that I find most helpful when it comes to getting a grip on my own heart and getting a grip on what is really going on inside of me when I choose to do wrong, why I do the things that I do. And it's the image of sin as idolatry. Not simply as transgression of the law or stated in these factual ways, really, but it's the sin of it's the image of sin as idolatry. And I want to walk through the Bible and kind of fill this out a little bit because isn't it interesting that throughout the Bible, beginning in the Old Testament, salvation is conceived very often as deliverance from bondage to idols. You have this theme from the very beginning. We see this in the story of the Exodus, and as many Old Testament scholars have noted, even the 10 plagues on Egypt by which the children of Israel were delivered from their slavery, from their bondage, were judgments on the gods of Egypt. Um, I want to read a bit here. This this is from, a, I, I call it sort of a popular uh, popular level um, Bi- Old Testament biblical theology called Walking with God, written by Tim Gray and Jeff Cavins. And they describe this. Listen to what they say. The first plague turns the Nile to blood. The Nile, which was the linchpin of the Egyptian economy and life, was worshipped as the god Hapi. To see the Nile, a constant source of life, now running with blood, would signify death, and the conclusion would be drawn that the god of the Hebrews had struck a mortal blow to the Egyptians' beloved god Hapi. The second plague, the multiplication of frogs, brings judgment on the goddess Hecht, the goddess of life and fertility, who was represented in Egypt as a woman from the waist down and a frog from the waist up. Quite attractive, I would say. Um, When God multiplied the frogs and then killed them off, he was again asserting his dominion and so forth. We can walk through all the plagues of the gnats and the flies and the boils and everything culminating in the plague of darkness over the land for three days. By the way, that's an interesting number, three days, right? Darkness for three hours, it comes to your mind. And three days, Jesus lying in the tomb. But these plagues continue, uh, culminating in the plague of darkness. Well, guess what? The Egyptians worshiped the sun god, right? The sun god, Ray. So this is God saying so much for the sun God. He makes the sky dark for three days. And then finally, the death of the firstborn of Pharaoh. Pharaoh was considered to be divine. His firstborn son, who would become Pharaoh, was divine. And so when we look at the Exodus, the entire thing is um, framed as judgments on the gods of Egypt. The the Israelites are being delivered out of bondage as the gods of Egypt are judged, but now we see this same theme just walking forward. We see this theme in the very animal sacrifices that the Israelites were commanded to offer. And again, I'm reading here from Gray and Caven's: Israel must worship the Lord by sacrificing animals that the Egyptians consider, uh, that the Egyptians themselves worshipped. Such sacrifices would be seen as an act of deicide, and would be punishable by death. For this reason, Moses requests a journey of three days' distance from Egypt. Worship is at the heart of the conflict between Pharaoh and Moses. Israelite worship turns Egyptian worship on its head, proving that what the Egyptians consider gods are not really gods at all. And so the Exodus I'm suggesting is all about the rejection and the destruction of foreign gods, of idols. And we see this again in the Ten Commandments given on Mount Sinai. I mean, think of it. What is the first of the Ten Commandments? I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a graven image or the likeness of anything under heaven above or in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down and you shall not serve them. So the gods of Egypt are are punished. The Israelites are told to sacrifice animals that were considered to be divine by the Egyptians. They go to Mount Sinai, and the first commandment is no idolatry. You must not serve foreign gods. You shall worship the Lord your God only. And then we see this in the the same emphasis on the rejection and the destruction of idols when we read God's instructions to his people as to what they're to do when they enter the land of promise. They're to tear down the foreign gods, they're to tear down the idols, they're to destroy them. And they're to make sure that they do not intermarry with any of the women or, or men, intermarry both directions, of the land. Why? Well, Deuteronomy chapter 7, listen to what God tells them. When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you are entering to take possession of it, you shall not make marriages with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they will turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods and on through the old testament okay sin is described as transgression of the law i'm sure we can find passages where sin is described as a failure to love as a falling short of of the glory of god and the image of god created in us all these other ways but this what i'm suggesting is a major theme that we find throughout the old testament is to think of sin in terms of idolatry um actual idolatry and spiritual idolatry. And along with that, spiritual adultery. It's as though, as I read, read the prophets especially, you guys, it's as though there's this continual message that I have called you to myself. I want you to cling to me. I, I want you to love me and follow me. I want you to be, uh, as it were, my bride and I, your husband. And I want you to cling to me. I will give you everything that you need to live this life that I'm calling you to. And God warns them of what will happen if they turn away to serve foreign gods or strange gods. You know, all all these images, again, come back in. And when they do that, we find God punishing them, but then we find God continually calling them back like a husband calling a faithless wife to return home where she belongs. And I want to read just one more verse and then I really would like to hear you guys' comments on this, okay? Um, To get the spirit of this whole thing, listen to God speaking through the prophet Jeremiah. This is from Jeremiah chapter two. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it became guilty. Evil came upon them, says the Lord. What wrong did your fathers find in me? I mean, there's like, there's the heart of God. He's pleading with his people. What wrong did you find in me that they went, did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless themselves? Has a nation ever changed its gods, even though they are not gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, says the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain or the spring of living water, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. I just see this theme. Let me leave it at this. In the Old Testament, I I, I see this theme running all the way through to think of disobedience in terms of a, a, a turning from God the spring of living water the answer if you will to to the desire of their hearts the answer to everything they really want in life and God's promises to give them everything turning from that to idols to foreign gods and i think of those passages where he says hear you up on every green tree and under on every high hill worshiping the ashera worshiping foreign gods and all that this is i think a powerful image of sin and as I'll explain in a moment why Why again, I think this is the most powerful way for us to think of sin because this gives us a real sense of what's happening inside of us, our, our motivation when we turn from God. Anyway, go ahead. What do you guys want to say?
1: So I, I, I don't have a ton to say here, but uh, other than to say it's fascinating that when you look through the Old Testament um, and the people that God created are being bad and breaking promises. God doesn't say you are bad children. You didn't do what I, your father told you to do. Um, He typically says you're an unfaithful spouse. I mean, that's, that's kind of the analogy that we get through, through the old Testament. And we even get it, you know, when Paul is talking in Ephesians five about this idea of Christ and his church, bride and bridegroom, um, Mm -hmm. you know, that, that kind of spousal relationship between Christ and the church. You know, some people might be a little bit confused about why marriage is, you know, got any definition on the planet. Cohabitation is this or that or whatever. Why does the Catholic Church hold on to these images of marriage? Why does the the, the church continue to insist on on you know this sort of sacramental understanding of marriage? It's partly because that's like one of the key ways we have to understand our relationship with God, right? And so, yes, if we kind of erase that. And move it off to the side, and you know, pretend like it doesn't matter. Then we've just taken a very key piece of what it means to understand our relationship to to the Lord, and 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 watered it out, and you know, down, and and, and dissipated it. Uh, so I mean, I just find it fascinating. I mean, God could use all kinds of images to say, you know, you are a uh, a lackluster employee, right? Right, or you are a you know, a a bad teammate. Uh, no, but what he uses over and over again throughout the scriptures is, you are an unfaithful spouse, and you know, under every green tree, that's usually you know when the when the whoring images go go out, right? Like it's all, it's all about yes, you cheated, yeah. you 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 were yeah. adulterous, you were adulterous. And, I mean, and believe me when I was reading,
0: and believe me when I was reading Jeremiah, I was thinking, oh, I could go to Hosea here. There's so many. I Ezekiel's mean, got through, some good ones. It's all through the Old Testament, yeah. mm-hmm
2: yeah Kenny I I I think I there's a lot I want to say and I'll hold some of it till after the next section Ken but but uh, but what I what I do want to say right here is how much I appreciate what you're doing with idolatry and obedience as it were to the false gods or the foreign gods or the gods who are not god as really the centerpiece of what it means to to be sinful or to do, to do that which is contrary to the will of God. So that these are not just arbitrary, like, oh, we broke, we broke some arbitrary rule. Um, we, you know, we did something we weren't supposed to do because of an arb- arbitrary law code. Rather inside of God's laws, God's ordinances, God's warnings, God's encouragement, all of that is covenantal language about a, a relationship that god created us to have with him and so to go against uh, to go along with these other ideas is to go against our covenantal familial um and not even say <laughs> nuptial or marital relationship to god yes. as his people and this is why the image of adultery and idolatry often overlapping uh in the bible yes. because it's it's a fundamental transgression Against our relationship with God as His people, as His imagers, and I, I have yeah. something else I, I want to say about this in a minute. But I but I feel like the next section can, okay. can maybe okay. add add more energy to it. Well,
0: well, I like the fact too that that Matt brought up the idea of it's not like you're a lackluster employee because yeah, our relationship to God is not an employee, and God's the employer and right. we work for God, and he pays us a salary. I mean, that's the damning system of works righteousness right right there. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so so God's not saying, you're a bad employee. No, our relationship is not one of contract like that. It is of covenant, as you said. So it's a, it's, it's in a totally different realm. Okay, now, I've taken the time to develop this theme through the Old Testament because I, I really do believe that This image of spiritual idolatry, spiritual adultery, and you're right, the two kind of weave together. They're the two ways of saying the same thing. Mm -hmm. I think that they are the most helpful way of thinking about what is going on inside of us when we sin. Now, some years back, I, I ran into a book titled Addiction and Grace, and this is written by a Christian psychologist, Dr. Gerald May. And when I read the book, I was surprised to hear him describing the process of addiction, chemical addiction other kinds of addictions too as well, but describing it in terms so similar to what we've been talking about here and using terms like idolatry and adultery. Listen to what he said. He's describing how addiction comes about, and he's a Christian psychologist. I am convinced that all human beings have an inborn desire for God. Okay, there we are back to Pascal, back to the Catechism, back to the Bible. Whether we are consciously religious or not, this desire is our deepest longing and our most precious treasure if we would cl- if we could claim this longing as the true treasure of our hearts we would with god's grace be able to live the commandments okay, now i just want to stop there for a second listen to what he's saying if we were to to claim this longing for god the longing that we have for god as the deepest treasure of our hearts we would be able by god's grace to live the commandments because we would be clinging to God and trusting in God and wanting to do what God says every step of the way because we would see him, that is again, loving relationship with him and being transformed into the loving people that we are called to be. I always think of that passage in Romans, the love of God shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That's the happiness of heaven, is to have love shed abroad, filling us and overflowing from us in all directions. That's happiness. Anyway, listen to what he says. If we could claim this longing, we would be able to live the commandments. But something gets in the way. The longing at the center of our hearts repeatedly disappears from our awareness, and its energy is usurped by forces that are not all that loving. Our desires are captured, and we give ourselves over to things that, in our deepest honesty, we really do not want here he is saying in other terms, in more psychological terms, exactly what we've been talking about, that when we choose to sin, what we are doing is attaching this desire for happiness that we have to something other than God. We're committing spiritual idolatry. We're committing spiritual adultery. We're running off from God. We're whoring about... (laughs) on every high hill and under every green tree to use old testament Im- imagery and of course it never really works our idols always turn out to be those broken cisterns that Jeremiah talked about that can hold no water because they're all cracked they don't work and i'm just wondering have you ever thought of addiction in those terms either either one of you
1: well i mean any habitual sin right um any kind of tendency or temptation i don't know about you but i could probably just record most of my confessions and just like play him back to the priest Anytime I go I feel like I'm a broken record man all my sins are boring and redundant Um, but you know we've been reading through the Screwtape letters as a staff sort of like an internal book club and in one of the chapters uh, there's this um, this advice from from Screwtape to Wormwood and he says I want you to get the patient to the point where at the end of his life he says to himself I spent most of my days doing neither what I ought to have done nor what I liked to do, <laughs> you know. Um, in some ways, like that. I mean, I I feel like that resonates um, not just in the terms of addiction, but just day to day dumb things that we soak up our lives with, right? Mm-hmm. We're not doing what we we're supposed to be doing. We're actually not even doing what we enjoy doing, and that's yeah. where the devil wants us, you know, to to be miserable. Uh, and also doing the wrong thing. I mean, it's what you're saying together.
0: What you're saying right there, Matt, reminds me of this line in the uh, in that uh, book, Addiction and Grace, that I just read from. The line where he says, the, "This longing at the center of our hearts disappears from our awareness." So it's not just that we have this longing going full tilt all the time, and we're either turning it toward God or we're turning it toward money or we're turning it toward sex or something like that. It often just disappears from our awareness, and that's when we're in that blah routine, like you said. I spent my days doing stuff that that I didn't even like. Yeah. Go ahead, Kenny. I heard you
2: beginning to say something. Yeah. It's a, this is this is a perfect place to quote from Saint Thomas Aquinas. Um, <laughs> please, but but please seriously, leave. but. Uh, you know, as a relatively new Catholic, you know, I've been a Catholic just almost four years now, and on my journey for uh, well over five years, I I have learned so much about how to talk about sin. Um, I would say the right way <laughs> as a Catholic, how to think about it in a deeper way, and you're bringing out you know all of these overlapping ideas about the relationship between sin and and addiction and so forth. And even this theme of love—that it's that it's that it's sin—is to fail to love. And to be honest, and this is how the Catechism actually defines mortal sin in uh, paragraph eighteen fifty-six. It says, "Mortal sin, by attacking the vital principle within us that is charity or love, <laughs> necessitates a new initiative of God's mercy." And on it goes. But then the Catechism quotes. Uh, St. Thomas Aquinas. It says, when the will sets itself upon something that is of its nature incompatible with the charity or the love that orients man toward his ultimate end, God and eternal fellowship with God and his people, then the sin is mortal by its very object. And your, your original question there, Ken, is have you ever thought about addiction and sin and the way they overlap with each other. And when I first read this as a Catholic, I thought, you know, well, like, why do I sin? Why do I sin? The answer, because I love something more than God. Or another way of saying it, I do not love God above all, which is what? The first and great commandment to love the Lord my God. So I have let another love into my yes. life, and, and I have loved it more than my own life, more than maybe my family, more than God Himself. And, and, and I have allowed my, my disordered love for something that doesn't belong in my life to take me captive. Uh, in a sense, I, I'm worshiping another God the way I ought to be worshiping yes. the one true God.
0: Yeah. Let me throw one more quotation into the pot, just from another angle, describing the same kind of phenomenon in other words. This is from a wonderful book written by um, Thomas Merton that is titled The Ascent to Truth, where he's basically developing the theology, the spiritual theology of St. John of the Cross. I found this quotation where he's describing the same reality, though, but but using the image of someone who's in, in the desert Staggering along in the desert and following after a mirage. (laughs) Okay. And this is how he puts it. It's, It's a beautiful quotation of something very, very troublesome. The earthly desires men cherish are shadows. There is no true happiness in fulfilling them. Why then do we continue to pursue joys without substance? Because the pursuit itself has become our only substitute for joy which is a very subtle, but it's, it's another way of saying what you just said, Kenny. Though so The pr- pursuit itself becomes a substitute for the real thing, for joy, whether, it's, whether we're aiming toward money or, or, or any other thing. L- listen to what he says. Unable to rest in anything we achieve, we determine to forget our discontent in a ceaseless quest for new satisfactions. It is not enough to say that the man who is attached to this world has bound himself to it once and for all, by a wrong choice, one choice. No, he spends a whole net of falsities around his spirit by the repeated consecration of his whole self to values that do not exist. He exhausts himself in the pursuit of mirages that ever fade and are renewed as fast as they have faded, drawing him further and further into the wilderness where he must die of thirst So whether I want to speak, I'm talking about myself here, whether I want to speak of idols in my life or the strange gods that I follow after or unhealthy attachments to things that may be good things God's created, but unhealthy attachments to them, making them the center thing rather than God, or whether I want to talk about addictions or whether I want to talk about the tendency to follow after mirages using Thomas Merton's language here, that just as the children of Israel had become slaves in Egypt, laboring under these taskmasters, this is where the Lord finds us. This is where we are. Um, uh, you know, I wish I could find some brilliant way to kind of pull together everything we've said in three sessions here, because I see it. it, it it's like a. It's not a mirage. It's like an image in my mind of truth, but. You and I, the three of us and all of us in this world, we are seeking happiness all the time. We've been created for happiness, but we've been created for a happiness that can only be found in God. And Now, that sounds abstract to say, in God. Well, what's the content of that? Well, the content of that is loving, renewed, reconciled relationship with God and being filled with God's love both directions and outward toward all creation and all people. And you know, I stopped and thought about that too. I'm, I'm glad you brought in that passage about charity and love from the, from the catechism. Cause I was asking myself just earlier, when do I, when in life do I feel so happy that I just begin to laugh and kind of just overflow, you know, with happiness. And the la- the last time I can remember, I have two new twin granddaughters in my life who are only about nine months old. Last week, I'm sitting on the couch at my daughter's house, and I pick up one of the little ones, and I'm just standing her in my lap and bouncing, and she's smiling at me. And I got going with her, and, and I felt like I was like I could have been just transported right into heaven. I, I was so happy that I you know, really just had to kind of start laughing. I'm smiling, but it's smiling that's becoming laughing. And I realized it's just love. You know, at that moment, you know, at that moment, there's nothing else in my mind. There's no idol out there or anything like that. I'm just loving this little girl that's standing in my lap and looking at my face and smiling at me and, and making faces and it's love is what we want. And, and what Thomas Merton says here is that we just, instead, we just repeatedly consecrate our, our lives to values that don't exist. And we exhaust ourselves. All of this language, I'm sure you can relate to it. We exhaust ourselves in the pursuit of mirages that ever fade. You know, like, man, if I could get some money and buy this, and then you get it and you run to it and the mirage has faded. <laughs> then you turn and go, what about this? And you run toward it, and this, before you get there, the mirage has faded, and you're mm-hmm. looking the, the other direction. I'm saying too many things. You know what I'm talking about, right?
1: I know exactly what you're talking about. I mean, well, I'll just use the example of... uh well, baseball is the beautiful game. Baseball is the greatest game that God and His wisdom ever allowed human beings to cooperate with Him <laughs> and invent. And it's he always a, it's a comes back game. to baseball.
0: He always comes it all, to baseball. It all
1: comes back to all comes back to baseball. But uh-huh. let's say that baseball, this beautiful game, you know, you love it, you understand objectively how good and beautiful it is. But you know, it'd be better if you could like bet on whether. The Reds or the Padres are going to win tonight. And, you know, at a certain point, that's not quite enough. So you're going to bet on how many strikeouts <laughs> your starting pitcher is going to get. You're going to bet on how many extra base hits your offense gets. You're going to bet on how many, on what color. Get. Like, you just, you keep on like chasing them around. Right. The, the whole prop bet world that is just sort of poison sports, it's like, you can't just enjoy the thing that was given to you as a gift. You have to kind of like exhaust yourself with all these other things that are really at the end of the day, not about the beauty of the game anymore. (laughs) Right. It's just about Mm -hmm. one more little diversion that you've like thrown into the mix. And you know, it's, it's making mud pies instead of Mm -hmm. hanging out at the sea. Um, I think we do that in a whole bunch of different ways, right? I mean, we do it with food, Uh, of course, sex. You know, you've brought that up. You do, I mean, consumerism, making money, any of it, uh, right? You just Mm -hmm. take what could be a good and beautiful and true thing and just say, well, what if we modified this? You know, you got me- Tweaked it.
0: You got me cracking up because now I'm imagining, Kenny, I I think you'll enjoy this. Now I'm imagining that when Matt goes into the confessional, it's, father, it's baseball again. It's baseball again. (laughs) It's baseball. <laughs> Bless me, Once Father. Again. I hung out with...
1: The Phillies were in town, and you know how they are.
2: <laughs>
1: well, well, I don't... Ha-
2: <laughs> I know nothing about baseball, and I don't have a baseball analogy. I'm sorry. But I do have a Bible uh, thought to end with, um, and this would be <laughs> my final contribution. And, and Matt and Ken, you know, this this phrase you used, Matt, or I mean Ken, in the last section where you said... This is where the Lord finds us. He used that phrase, and you're talking about in this in this broken state. And what I want to say right here is that's what when I read the Old Testament, and if I just read the Old Testament and I, I'm I'm finished, I've closed it, done, read the whole thing. My my immediate thought is that is a story of stories crying out for an answer, (laughs) crying out for a resolution. Is everybody always going to be like this? So to to do a little build-up before the next episode. Humans in a garden, humans in the wilderness, humans at a tree, always messing up. Will we ever find a version of humanity in a garden, in the wilderness? or at a tree, to use all of these meta symbols in the Old Testament, who says no to all the things that they said yes to in these stories, and who says yes to all the things that they were constantly, constantly saying no to in these stories, to give us some other version of what it means to be a human being that we can follow other than what we have so far.
0: Well, this is where we're going, um, Kenny. This is where we're going next week. Because there are, there are people watching this podcast, YouTube show. There are people listening to this who are enslaved. And I would mm-hmm. say, I'll, I'll include the three of us. We have tendencies too, all of us. There are mm-hmm. people who are enslaved to work. And it's one of those mirages that's fading. It, it, it doesn't mm-hmm. work. You know, you know. You said no one, no one lying on their deathbed ever says, ah, oh, I wish I'd spent more time at the office. There are people that are enslaved to pleasure. There are people who are enslaved to sex, people enslaved to the internet, people enslaved to drugs and alcohol, people enslaved to ambition and power, to possessions, to experiences, to adventure, to anything within this created world except for God and God's desire for us. And we need to be set free. And this is where we're going to go next week. We're going to begin to talk in in a hardcore, very practical way. How do we get out? How does it work? How Mm -hmm. do we break these patterns in our lives? How do we move forward? This is where we begin next week. And I'll close with that.
1: You know, it's funny. Some people listening right now um, who know that this is a, uh, a bunch of guys who became Catholic from various backgrounds might say, oh, this is what the Catholic Church thinks about these sorts of things. Just so you know, like every revival service that I ever went to as a kid, it was basically about the exact stuff we're talking about yeah, <laughs> in yeah. this right. series. This is this is boilerplate stuff. Um, this is what I was raised on. So, yeah, I love, I love talking about this kind of thing because I know, well, I know my need of the Lord. Um, it's Amen. pretty apparent to me. But show us uh, the
0: book one more time, show us the code one more time, and let's get going.
1: I got the book. Um, (laughs) if you want to make a recurring gift, especially that's what we're really requesting for this series, um, if you go to chnetwork.org/slash donate, you can donate any amount per month: uh, 10, 25, 50, 100, whatever you feel led to do. A A million dollars a month. That would help a whole lot. <laughs> but we'll give you a copy of uh, Marcus Grody's book, What Must I Do to Be Saved?, which deals with these themes. And Kenny, are you going to make Marcus sign some of these?
2: We better. Yeah, if, if, if the folks sign up for Compass, they'll get a signed copy of uh, of What Must I Do to no, Be Saved? I by, know how to write. By I know Grody. how
0: to I know how to write no, the word mar- Marcus if it comes no, down to it.
2: It'll be a real signature. Not Nobody one cares about mirage. any of our signatures. Not a mirage, not a mirage but a real signature. I don't want anything signature.
1: signed by okay. Kenny Burchard or Ken Hensley or myself. I don't need any of those things. I just want Marcus's <laughs> signature. OTJ3141 is the code you got to put in uh, when you make that monthly gift. We'd be very much appreciative. Go to chnetwork.org for more resources, previous episodes in this series. Uh, other series as well. You can also go to community.chnetwork.org to plug into our online community, and we are so grateful for all of your support. Again, chnetwork.org/donate. OTJ thirty-one forty-one, the code to get one of these Good babies deal. right here signed. Ken Hensley, Kenny Bouchard. Thank you as always. Have a wonderful Good day.
0: day. Good day, sir. See you guys.